The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Hello again, dear friends. Father Lee here with another podcast. We're shifting gears a bit over the next several weeks to take an in-depth look at the book of First Peter. Martin Luther once wrote, This epistle of St. Peter is also one of the noblest books in the New Testament. It is the genuine and pure gospel. What truer words could have been spoken? Here, St. Peter outlines the work of the gospel in the life of the church, how believers are to move in the world around them, and in the face of suffering and persecution, pours out beautiful images of hope for his congregations. What a noble genuine, pure gospel indeed. At St. Aidan's, we have a particular method for reading scripture based on the historic Christian patterns for reading the Bible. We ask four key questions while we read. What happens? Where is Christ? How should I live? And finally, what is our hope? I have a longer video detailing this method for reading scripture on our YouTube channel. If you're interested, You'll find a link in the description, along with the links to the discussion notes for this episode. In the time of coronavirus, we, like many churches, are unable to gather to read Scripture together. So this meeting is being hosted via Zoom. This poses benefits and complications. So I ask for your patience as we're adjusting to this new method for hosting meetings. And I invite you to sit in on a small group discussion at St. Aidan's as we open up the first epistle of St. Peter. All right, so we are going to be studying from the first epistle of Peter. Um, the first chapter, we're going to go a little bit slow because there is a very intense and very um, kind of dense section that happens right at the very beginning of the letter. <clears throat> so, what is, uh, what is the letter that, that Peter writes? Um, let's do a little bit of background on this. Obviously, as with most books in the Bible, there is a lot of debate among scholars as to where the book actually came from. Um, there are some idiosyncrasies. There, there are some, some odd parts of the book that make people suggest that maybe this wasn't um, a book written by an illiterate fisherman. Um, here's the thing about that, all right? And, and I bring this up because we're kind of talking about this in the podcast already. We, we in the West 
tend to have this image of letter writing that looks like letter writing does for us right now. Like when, when people used to write letters, of course, you know, no one writes letters anymore, but once upon a time you would sit down at your desk and you would probably, you know, close all of the doors so that nobody was annoying or disturbing you. And then you would sit down and you would write the letter out and then you would put your signature at the bottom of the letter so that whoever you sent the letter to would know that that came from you, from your hand and it was delivered to them. Um, here's the reality of the, the, the world of the Bible. No one wrote that way. None people wrote letters like that to anyone ever. Um, here's the way that a letter, a, a letter writing process worked. If you had a letter that you wanted to send to somebody, it was going to cost you a significant amount of money. You went to the, the marketplace and you hired a scribe and the scribe would come to your home and he would bring a stack of clay tablets um, and then he would have a, a pen uh, that he would use to mark up these clay tablets. And so if you had something that you didn't like, he would smudge it out with his thumb or scrape it flat. And then he would cover back over the part. And once you got the letter down to the place that you liked, to the way that you liked it, he would then take all of those, those rough drafts that he had a copy of, and he would sit down and he would write them out in, in his own hand. This is why it's significant that like when Paul is writing some of his letters, he says, don't you see I'm writing this with my own hand? He makes the scribe stop what he's doing. And then he walks over and with his own hand writes that part of the letter. He's like, I'm not dictating this to anybody. But here's the other thing. We often think about the letters of Paul and, and many of the epistles as though Paul were sitting there and maybe he had a secretary. And so he was just dictating the letter. But again, that's not the way that letter writing worked because Paul didn't have a room that was all his own. And even if he did, the room would be dark all the time. Um, it's too expensive to light things. And so Paul would be sitting in the atrium or on the rooftop or on the balcony or in the middle of the street with this scribe and he would be dictating this letter. But other people were there also, people who were friends of Paul, people who were leaders in the church, all of those people were there. And we know that Paul says in many of his letters that, that other people were writing the letters along with him. These people were all gathered together, all of them writing these letters. So the letter that was being communicated from Paul to the church in Ephesus was from Paul, but it was also from the people who were with him. And it was also from the church where he was staying. <clears throat> and so this, the, the, the letter writing process is not like it would be for us. And so it's a little bit unfair um, again, this is in my opinion. It's a little bit unfair for scholars to say, oh, well, Peter came from Galilee and he was, you know, stupid. And so obviously this letter couldn't have come from him. Uh, the letter absolutely could have come from him because it's not just Paul. In fact, this letter explicitly says that this is Paul and Silas who are writing this letter together. Um, it, it, uh, Peter names himself right at the beginning of it, and at the end of the at the end of the letter, Silas signs his name on the letter as well. Uh, so, so we know that at least the two of them are writing, and probably several others of them are writing. We know that he wrote this letter in Rome because he refers to Rome later on in the letter, um, and so we know that he had other people around him. That many of these people were educated. And so, this idea that we can just sort of write him off is, you know, is frankly, um, well, it's it's racist. Um, that's, that, that's just what it boils down to. People, you know, want to, want, want to grab this guy and say, oh, well, he's poor and stupid, so we don't have to listen to him. Um, he couldn't have written those things. It had to be one of those, you know, smart Greeks or one of those clever Romans. Um, and it definitely wasn't one of those, you know, dumb Jews from the hills. Um, 
and uh, you know the world the, the world is as it ever was, and that's the way that people uh, the the way that people get treated, especially by Germans in the 19th century. So, <clears throat> so this letter is the scholarly consensus now is that this is probably by Peter. Um, it's probably written toward the end of uh, the 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 so somewhere in the late 50s. Uh, so we're looking at right around 30 years after um, after the death of Jesus, right toward the end of Peter's life, because he is he he mentions that he's in Rome already at the point of writing this letter and sending it out. Now, who does he write this letter to? He says in the very beginning of it that he's writing it to the to to the the people who are dispersed in Pontus and in Galatia and in Cappadocia and in Asia and in Bithynia. Um, and remember that we said that it is important for us whenever a place name shows up to pay attention to where the place name is from. The, that the writers give us those place names because they want us to know who is who is talking, where they're talking, where they're from. They want us to be able to locate what's happening in this particular story. So what what these specific areas refer to are the areas um, primarily in. Um, so right around the, the, the coastal region of Turkey and then throughout Turkey. But he also mentions that this is for Galatia, which is the area that is um, north and a, a little bit west of Greece. Um, he's writing this to churches where he has had contact with other people, places where he's done teaching, places where he has worked with people, places where he has sent missionaries to be involved. Um, now, here's, here, here are the interesting things about this letter. What we're going to notice as we read this, a lot of times when Paul is writing a letter, Paul wants to make sure that he says everything exactly right every single time. And he's very precise and very clear about the way that he communicates. And that's wonderful. It, it works really well for us to um, to. to to receive those words of encouragement, the clear enunciation of doctrine. But sometimes Paul, you'll notice, sort of steps out of that role, and he steps into that role of pastor, and the tone in his letter changes. It happens about midway through the, 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 the first epistle to the Corinthians. It happens right at the beginning in the, the letter to the, to the Galatians. Every once in a while that happens. But in Peter's epistle, Peter has the tone of a pastor all the way through. In fact, a lot of this sounds kind of like it may have been a homily, or at least pieces of a homily. Some people have suggested this may have been a, um, a homily at somebody's baptism. It could have been an, an Easter homily um, that, that Peter gave and that somebody wrote down and that they you know, adjusted later on. Um, so there is... There's discussions here about um, suffering, and there are discussions about holiness, and discussions about what it means for us to live in community. Now, um, for those who are interested, uh, the, the commentaries that I'm using in preparing for our studies are primarily the expositor's commentary, which is just, you know, about the best commentary you can get your hands on. Um, there are some other good ones out there, but that one is the best. I'm also using uh, the Smith and Helwes commentary, the Oxford commentary, the uh, the ancient Christian commentary a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it, it's hit or miss over there. And then I'm also using some stuff from N.T. Wright. He did a series uh, called the um, the Early Christian Letters for Everyone. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm using some of those things in our, uh, in our study together. So with all of that said, let's move over to, well, before we do that, let's read together. How about that? It's our first one. Who wants to be the reader for the, for the, for the first one? We're going to start in verse one and we're going to go through verse 12. So after verse 12, we'll stop. Who wants to be the reader? I'll read. All right. Let's do it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired, inquired carefully, inquiring what people or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right. Nailed it. Yeah. All right. So, here is uh, here before we dive in. Here's a fun note. If you if you notice that you most of your Bibles probably have a section that goes from verse three to verse twelve. Are most of your divide your Bibles divided up that way? So that's kind of its own little section. In the Greek, that is one sentence, one long sentence. All nine. It's of those only like words. three sentences in English. In English, yeah, it's all <laughs> broken down into three sentences. So we're gonna when, when we get to that, I've got a way for us to sort of navigate our way, <laughs> navigate our way through it. Um, okay, so let's um, so let's talk about this passage. Okay. What I'm going to do is use the, use the whiteboard, unless it doesn't work, um, and then I will not use the whiteboard. So the question that we normally ask when, when we begin reading together is, 
what happens. All right, so this is, we're, we're still gonna be using the, the study Bible method that, that we use normally. We're gonna ask what happens, we're gonna pay attention to things that might trip us up or trap us up. Uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna pay attention to all of that stuff, but we're gonna do it as we walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book. Now, what I've done, because this chapter is, especially with that one you know, gigantic sentence, this chapter could be really overwhelming really quickly. All right. Um, so I just, I wanted to, I, I wanted to make note of that before, before we try to, we try to dive in. So what I thought we would do is try to draw out two or three main points. And then I've already shared with you guys an outlined version of the, of that giant long section. And so that way we can kind of walk through it and we can talk through the way all of those different verses sort of relate to each other. And we'll talk about a few translating translation issues when we get to the, um, to the iceberg question section. Um, so it starts off with this greeting. If you were going to sum up the greeting, how would you sum that up? Those first, the, those first two verses, obviously Peter gives a greeting, but then what? These were the churches that had been dispersed. Uh-huh, exactly. He's writing it to the dispersed churches. All right. So he writes this letter to the dispersed churches. And what does he want the dispersed churches to know? That they were chosen um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he mentions that he brings Trinitarian language into this uh, foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, um, and sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. So then let's look at the longer body, that whole section. So, so he says that this letter is being sent to the Christians who are dispersed around the world. Um, he, what, what, what he means by that is people who are who had been who, who had been scattered? A lot of these, a, a lot of the people that he's writing to have uh, have Jewish heritage, and they live all throughout the area. Uh, and so he's writing to those places because those are the places that the apostles went. They went into places where there were Jewish communities, and they began to preach and to share the gospel there. Uh, and that was the way that the gospel moved forward. So he's writing to these churches all throughout the dispersed area in Asia Minor. And what does he want to say to them? What is this living hope that he's talking about? There's hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's right. Now he's going to draw out some more some more implications uh, of the of, of the resurrection. Okay, he's he's going to talk about what. The, the resurrection accomplishes. And the thing that he's going to come back to over and over and over again is this idea that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord, and that, and, and that God is sovereign. And those are, for us at least, in the 21st century in, in America, those are theologically loaded words. And so we're going to want to be careful as we read through this that we're not, um, that we're not imposing some ideas from from some of the, the reformers in the, in, in the 15th and 16th century on top of the, the, the text itself. We want to hear this the way that Peter is writing this to Peter's audience so that we can hear and enter into the story that he's sharing about who God is and what God is doing. All right. So he says that we have hope because of the resurrection of Christ. And what is the hope that he points to? Um, what jumps out to me is uh, 
an inheritance uh, that is imperishable and un, you know, it, he goes into all this description of this inheritance that we have it looks like of, uh, of heaven of God's kingdom and he taught uses words imperishable and undefiled related to like a lot of language for incorruptibility and everlasting life sort of thing okay and of course inheritance implies membership into the family yes absolutely and that's the really really big thing mm -hmm. yes that is a huge deal this idea that we're being we're being brought in or grafted into this this family that that god is putting together now he goes on to talk about how this is revealed by christ um, that this promise is being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says that the, let me, I, I, I want to say it the way, that, the, the way that he says it, okay? So I'm looking at verse 8 right now. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So our hope is that, I'm going to say it accomplishes or it completes our salvation. Also, that's not how you spell, spell the word our. <laughs> We're. We. 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 <laughs> French spelling. There we go. Okay. So he's going to tie this into faith. And again, that's one of those words that we, as, as Western Christians, we have a lot of baggage around that. Um, and so we're going to want to make sure that we are very clear on what we're talking about, because Peter is saying some things that we might not be paying attention to, and because he's not saying some things that we might infer or that we might assume into the text while we're reading it. Now, he moves on from that to talk about the promise of our salvation, all right? And he does that by going back to the prophets, the, the prophets who prophesied. Um, and what does he say about the prophets? It says that they gave prophecies, but that the prophecies weren't for themselves. They were giving prophecies about Jesus in order for what? They gave the words of prophecy about Jesus in order that you and I might be saved, that you and I might be brought into this kingdom, this life, this family, going back to that, that original discussion that he had about what our hope is. And he says something really, really powerful that I don't know if we're going to have enough time to fully unpack, um, but the very last thing that he says the things had been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to, um, to we're, we're going we're gonna to hit pause on, uh, on, our, on our whiteboard right now, and I'm going to change the video over so we can look at something else, just in case you guys didn't already have the um, the document that I put up on the Facebook page. All right. So this is the um, th this is the opening sentence. Okay. That's in, in that that's what New Testament scholars call this. This is the opening sentence of First Peter. 
uh, verses 3 through 12. Okay, so let's read this together, and then we'll pause a little bit along the way to discuss. So this is not, this is probably different than, than the translations that you have. This is, the, this is from the, uh, the, the Smith and Hellwas commentary, uh, but I thought that the way that he diagrams this and the way that he sort of, he, he puts parenthetical statements back in so that we know what the sentence is referring to, because the jargon here is really tricky to follow sometimes, all right? So let's read along together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, rebegat us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance, uncorrupted, unstained, and unfading, guarded in heaven. For you who are being protected through faith into a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. All right, so let's talk about that passage right there just for a second, okay? He says to the, to the people who are scattered around Asia Minor, blessings to you and blessings to God. The first thing that he does is give glory to God. And then he says why God is being glorified, why God is glorious. Because in his mercy, we have been reborn. The translator here uses rebegat. Um, what are some of the other, the, the other translations? Mine, my, the, I'm using the ESV, and mine just says born again. Do you get, does anybody have something other than born again? Uh, I do. Mine's the, uh, the Orthodox uh, New King James. Okay. Version and it it has uh, begotten us again. He has begotten us again. I love that. That image is so powerful. Uh, yeah, mine uh, far less powerful, but still technically different. Uh, new birth. <laughs> new birth. Uh huh. Exactly. So that so we have been born into a living hope, not a promised hope, but into a hope that we are living right now. And this hope that we are living right now is because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Because he has been raised from the dead, we now have an inheritance. And it's not a, the kind of inheritance that goes away because the stock market crashes and it doesn't go away because, uh, uh, be, because the, the bank collapses. It doesn't go away because there's a famine or a plague. This is uncorrupted, unstained, unfading, guarded and hidden and protected away from us in heaven. And it belongs to us because we are protected through faith into a salvation prepared to be revealed in the last time. Now, this is what is important for us to remember, because for us, we typically hear that phrase being protected through faith, all right? My ESV says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, guarded through faith, protected through faith, so often for us, we hear that word faith and we think believing the right things. And that's not the way that faith works in the Mediterranean world in the first century. That word doesn't mean believing things. The word faith in the world of Peter and the world of Paul and the world of Jesus means faithfulness. It means you and I entering into a covenant 
and upholding our part of the covenant. That's what faith is. Faith isn't something that we believe. Faith is something that we do. And we do it in response to gifts that we don't deserve. We do that in response to uh, care and provision and protection that's given to us. And the word in that culture for that gift is grace. We receive grace and our response to receiving grace is faith. Our response to the gift of God is faithfulness to God. All right, are we all tracking from that point? Let me scroll down a little bit. So we are protected through faith into a salvation prepared to be revealed at the last time. And it is in this condition that we now rejoice. Even if for a little while your suffering, various testings is required, so that the provenness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is proven through fire, may be found, he says, as a cause for praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus. We rejoice in the midst of our current situation. And remember that he's saying this to people who are surrounded by pagan cultures. He's saying this to people whose lives are often put at risk because of their choice to be Christians. Because of their faithfulness, they are enduring hardships, and they are enduring struggles, and they are enduring persecutions. Peter, in a few years, is going to endure public execution. But he says that in this condition, we rejoice so that the provenness of our faith will be cause for praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. It will be revealed that we have been faithful when Jesus is revealed. When Jesus is revealed, our faithfulness will also be, be revealed. Jesus, the one who we love, although we don't, we don't see him, on whom we believe without seeing him, but rather we rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, receiving as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Our faith becomes our salvation. And that salvation was prophesied. It was, it was proclaimed by the prophets who searched and sought out and made careful inquiry into which person or which time the Spirit of Christ intended. But it was that same Spirit, it was the Spirit testifying in them about the sufferings and the glories of Christ. The prophets revealed that because they were pursuing God. They weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for God. And so God was doing, was doing this work of prophecy, this work of proclamation, this work of promise and of praise. It was being accomplished in and through the prophets by the Holy Spirit so that it could now be proclaimed to us by the same Holy Spirit who is sent from heaven, who is proclaiming to us this mystery that the angels long to behold. All right, does that help us to kind of wrap our heads around that idea a little bit? I know it's still incredibly, incredibly dense um, theologically and, and it, well, in, in all ways. This is an, an incredibly dense passage. That's why I decided we weren't going to do the entire chapter all in one sitting. It would just be, you know, just way too much, way too much all at once. All right, so let's jump back to our, to our whiteboard, okay? 
So we've got some idea, some, some better understanding of what happens and, and why it's happening in this particular passage. What are some things that we would want to make sure that we pay attention to as, as we're going along here? Those iceberg questions. Words, phrases, ideas. We mentioned um, the grace and faith distinction. That one's always worth pointing out just because um, because I, I grew up hearing those words and, and not fully understanding uh, how, they, how they worked and how they worked together. What else? Uh, I guess something that I would like to kind of point out since you mentioned the Reformers, in verse 2, uh, when it was talking about them being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, mm -hmm. um, I've never really heard much of a an explanation kind of contra contradictory to the Calvinists as to how the foreknowledge and predestination language and everything plays uh, the, the role that it plays, because I'm, I'm not convinced it plays the role that the Calvinists think it does, but I'm kind of curious about that. So you're wondering how foreknowledge works if it's not... Not Calvinistic predestination. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the author in one of the commentaries that, that I was reading pointed out that there is a, 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 a word choice that, that Peter uses in, in this verse that makes it notoriously difficult to translate correctly. Um, and so the, like the way that I have it written here is, all right, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I imagine that at least one or two of you have a different translation of that passage. Whose translation says something different than that? What, what verse is that? That's verse 2. So the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his, with, with his blood. One way that it, it, can be, it, it can be translated is because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Another way that it can be translated is for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet another way of translating it is for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the, the, the Greek there is not clear on, on where the obedience lies. If, if the obedience belongs to Christ or if the foreknowledge is about obedience, that God foreknows those who will be obedient and therefore they are sprinkled with the blood of Christ through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That is one way of translating this passage. Now, it's not the way, but it's one way of translating the passage. Um, and it's important for us to note there that the sprinkling of blood, for when we hear that, we usually think of uh, sacrifices that remove sin, but in the Jewish world, that's not the use for sprinkled blood. Sprinkled blood is always about establishing a covenant. Uh, and so this idea of us being sprinkled with, with Jesus's blood means that we are being invited into, um, into a covenant relationship with him. So it's possible to read that and say that, yes, this is God, God's, the, the Father's foreknowledge, um, of, of who is going to be obedient. That's absolutely one accurate way of translating this passage. 
However, an equally accurate way of translating and structuring this passage is that his foreknowledge is about the obedience of Jesus. Okay, so both of those are accurate, and one is not more accurate than another. They're both ways of reading that, um, and, and, and neither of those ways of reading that changes anything that Peter is going to say later on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, thank you. That was good. I've got a question for you, Father Lee. All right, uh, shoot. What, what kind of persecution was going on in the 50s? Is there's a lot of uh, talk about protection, you know, trials being processed like, you know, the proving of gold and things like that. Right. Yeah, there were, the, the, the persecution at this point was not widespread. The first widespread persecution happened under Nero. Uh, and so that still is probably five or six years away at, at the point of this letter being written, at least the first time this letter was written and sent out. Um, but we do know that there were local persecutions that happened fairly regularly and not just local persecutions but oftentimes when missionaries would go into places the stories that we have or the hagiographies that we have say that missionaries went into places and were just you know just just killed right off the bat they you know uh, either because they were missionarying badly there there are some stories about that where they have gone into a place and you just say you you said what to who that was that was just that, no of course of course that made them mad and then they did terrible things to you why would you say those things out loud? Um, and sometimes it was just that they went into a place and they were, uh, they, they, they were you know, dealing with, uh, uh, dealing with power structures that they, that they weren't equipped to deal with. Um, they were dealing with demonic interference that they weren't prepared to deal with. And so um, there is all kinds of, of suffering and hardship that's happening all around the world. And that doesn't even bring into it the, the, the periodic famines and plagues that were uh, breaking out all around the, the, the Middle East at the same time. Um, so while we obviously don't want to, you know, lump ourselves in with the, with, with the same thing, we, we, we can definitely say that the, the suffering that they are enduring is not only suffering for the sake of their faith, but that it seems that Peter, and he's going to do this a little bit more later on, it seems that he's inviting us wherever we are, however we are suffering, to enter into the suffering of Christ, to, to unite our own brokenness to the brokenness that Christ heals in himself through his death and through his resurrection. Um, and so that's a, a, a promise that's, that, that, that's worth holding on to. All right, so where do we see Christ? What is God doing in this passage? He's resurrecting and giving new life. Excellent. What else? What else is God doing in this passage? Uh, he is adopting us, inviting us into his covenant. Absolutely. What else is he doing? There's faithfulness, grace, faithfulness to the covenant. So the kind of God that we see being presented here, this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we should put that down because that, that use of, of, of triune language uh, is, is, is super important. So this is a, a triune God who's revealing himself in resurrection and the gift of new life, who reveals himself as adopting and giving, giving new life through adoption, of being faithful to his covenant, of pouring out his grace. If that's the kind of God who's calling us into relationship with himself, what should our response be? So we mark crosses down where we see God at work in the passage. Where would you mark down a, a, a dot? Where would you put a, a, a bold point off, off to the side? 
to, to indicate what we should be doing? What's our response to, to God revealing God's self? I liked verse six. Verse six, our response is to rejoice. We don't often think about that, right? We're like, well, our response is obedience and our response is service and tithing and doing this. And, but one of, the, one of the first things that he says that we should be doing is rejoice. That's our response to God revealing himself. Our response is joy. Like, look at the way that God loves. Look at the, the kind of world, the kind of relationship that he's calling us into. Um, I have a, a couple of things, um, both kind of related uh, from verses six and seven. Um, perseverance through through trial, because we, we know what's awaiting us on, on the other end of that. But also, um, you know, it says here, uh, you're talking about praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you talked about rejoicing and going along with that is praising and honoring him. Doxology. Doxology is kind of the, we don't realize it, but that's kind of the, almost the, it's really central to our telos as human beings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was looking at verse seven in, in my translation, genuineness of faith. That was one. What else? Look at, um, let's see, where am I here? Look at verse 12, right at the end. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. One of the responses that we have is preaching the good news. So let's wrap it up then. What is our hope? God reveals himself to be a God who raises us from death, a God who brings us into his family, a God who bestows life, a God who invites us into a new covenant, a God who lavishes his grace on us, a God who reveals, uh, who reveals himself to us as triune, as, as, as a God of relationship, as a God of relatedness, as a God of personness. This is the God that we serve, and our response is rejoicing and perseverance and doxology and faithfulness and proclamation then what is our hope? What is it that we're looking ahead to? What's the promise that is, that, that is being proclaimed in our proclamation and in the person of God? That we have uh, the incorruptible inheritance, mm -hmm. that we are members of that family. And as he says in there, the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Right. I guess I just kind of want to, I, I, don't, I don't know if uh, we should be, I, I, don't, I don't know if you'll be able to add anything on the board, but I kind of feel the need to expand on those a little bit that he said. It was, um, you know, the, we talk about incorruptibility and everlasting life. And something that's really struck me through my recent diving in, into the church father's has been this idea that, you know, we, we often talk about God as if he's kind of one being uh, among others, as opposed to being itself, life itself. So when we talk about everlasting life, this is such a greater and deeper hope than we often realize it is, because we tend to talk, you know, 
you have like the Roman view of the immortal soul that everybody has, but the patristic view, I think of St. Irenaeus in particular, you, it's actually the complete opposite of that. We don't have, we're not immortal by nature. Any immortality we have comes from God and it comes from us being given the the nature of God himself talking about uh, I think either I think it might even be in the next epistle or uh, or this one but it, it talks about um, participating in the divine nature and part of that is life is everlasting life and I've just I'm sorry if I keep going on but I've just been really really struck by how hopeful that that really is that we are because by the very nature of being created rather than eternal like god we would naturally have an end in and of ourselves but he has been kind enough to grant us his his life and that's part of why we have to kind of learn to love like he loves and everything else and all that we're called to do all wrapped up in our faith um that our faith teaches it's all about where we're, we're given that life. And I'm, I'm sorry for the rambling bit. That wasn't quite as, not quite an articulate as it was in my head. <laughs> got a little bit more excited, but that, that was what I felt I needed to say. Nope. I think I got that down. I wrote down the, the idea of us entering into covenant about God revealing God's self in Jesus. And then, and then the, the, the part about, we're being invited into sharing in God's immortality, that all of those are things that allow us to, um, to expand and to grow in the hope that we have uh, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's good. So did, in, any, other, uh, any other thoughts? Any other things that we want to add into our hope column or our uh, our, our living column, our Christ column, anything that we, we didn't add into our notes for the evening that you want to make sure that we include? No? All right. So next week, we will wrap up chapter one. Um, and then we'll see how far we get. Like I said, these, these chapters are kind of dense. There's a couple of them we might be able to get through in, in one week, but likely we'll be splitting them up into... Uh, a little bit more manageable sections like we like we need to do this evening. Um, so let's go ahead and we'll end that there. And we've gone a little bit over time. So let me just close us in prayer and send us out with a blessing. All right. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment, and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
with our Father is restored.